Before we uh, go into our passage today, let's open up uh, in prayer and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we come to you this morning in joy for what you have done uh, on our behalf in Christ. We rejoice in the many blessings in our lives, in our, our, our families, uh, the ways you have provided for us, the opportunities we have, the uh, many blessings that we have. But most of all, we rejoice and praise you for the blessings that we have in Christ, that we get to uh, be reconciled to you. We get to be counted righteous in Christ. We have forgiveness from our sins in Christ. And so we stand before you as those who... Uh, um, are in him and have all of those blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, uh, and those are ours. And so we rejoice and we praise you. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we're going to be talking about that topic of what it means to be saved and what is involved in being saved. As we think through this passage and work through it, I pray that you would bless our time, help us as we uh, seek to understand what you have here. Speak to us by your spirit, I pray. Do your work in our hearts, and may you be glorified, and we be changed in that process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, in the book of Acts again today. No surprise there. We're in chapter 15. So if you could be turning in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. And uh, while you're doing that, I remember... Uh, not all that long ago, well, I guess it was a quarter of a century ago now. It seems like just yesterday and then a million years ago. But when I first started coming to church, it was a little bit of an odd thing. I was a high school student at the time, and I was used to being grouped together with people my own age or, or very nearly my own age. And, uh, and usually with those people who were my own age and had similar interests to me. And so either uh, with uh, the athletes together or with the students together or people who were interested in the same things as me. And then all of a sudden I start coming to church as a new Christian and not everybody's my age. That's weird, right? And more than that, a lot of people couldn't have cared less about my own interests. <laughs> like they, they didn't care about baseball nearly as much as I did or about whatever I cared about. They had their own interests. And, uh, and so we weren't grouped together based on age and we weren't grouped together based upon our own uh, desires or interests or anything like that. And even a, a little bit more than that, there were some people included in the group. And again, I'm speaking 25 years ago that I may not have associated with on purpose beforehand. And now I see them at church and I think, well, here we are together, and we might not otherwise have been. And so now we're grouped together according to a completely different standard. It's not according to age. It's not according to the, the interests we have in common or, or whether we just really get along. But we're grouped together because of God. We're grouped together around the gospel. And that was a new thing for me. That was a little bit unusual. There were other unusual things like singing together was not something I had ever really done. And yet uh, in church, it turns out we sing and sometimes we even clap. And that was unusual. But being grouped together and being identified with a group that was uh, not of my choosing, that were grouped together because of the gospel was a new thing for me. And so as we come to our passage today, that's a little bit of the discussion that's going on in the church at this time, that there were... There were Jews who were Christians, and now there were becoming more and more Gentiles who were Christians. And they didn't have a lot of common interests. They didn't have a lot of history together that was good. And so how were they going to be grouped together? And so as we open to Acts chapter 15 and 
uh, we're going to be entering into our passage, that's the initial problem that they faced, was how to worship together, how to understand life together as Jews and as Gentiles. And uh, so this, this question of Gentiles in the church was really the issue. If you think back through the history of the book of Acts, you can kind of see this problem developing a little bit, right? With the stoning of Stephen, remember the disciples were sort of, uh, they, they left Jerusalem, they went into broader regions, and in many of those regions they would encounter a lot more Gentiles. And so it was initially a very Jewish context, and it was becoming less and less a Jewish context and more of a Gentile one as well. And then, uh, of course, you read about Philip, and Philip goes to Samaria and he preaches and the Samaritans become Christians and then uh, later on they, they receive the Holy Spirit just like the Jews had received the Holy Spirit. And of course, in chapter 10, God sends this great vision to Peter and Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius and that group with him, they hear the gospel, they are saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon them as evidenced uh, just like had with the Jews. And so you've got this growing question of how to mix these two together that used to be a, an issue largely uh, of a, a Jewish church in a Jewish context. And then, of course, Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journey, and they didn't go just to Jewish contexts. They went to Cyprus, and they went to southern Turkey, and, and preached the gospel initially to Jews, but then to Gentiles also, particularly as the Jews were rejecting. And so now you have a bunch of Gentile converts mixed in with the Jewish converts all throughout southern Turkey and Cyprus and in Antioch and all these places. And how is this going to work out? That raises the problem. How were those Gentiles to be added to the group? You can imagine a church that was of, of Jewish uh, background and they had had the law preached forever and now they've come to Christ. You can imagine that their level of knowledge of the Bible, their understanding of their culture and everything would have been very unified and would have been very different from the Gentiles, from the pagan nations around them. And so the question was, what process should these Gentiles go through to integrate into a church like that? What, what should they do? How should that happen? What kind of, uh, you know, if you think about all the unique cultural and religious distinctives of the Jews and these Gentiles were trying to fit into that context. And so how did that need to happen? That was the question. And so we come to our passage as we look at chapter 15 and verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's how these Jewish believers who had come from Judea and had gone up to Antioch that's how they viewed it. Well, how does this integration work? Well, essentially, Gentile, you need to become a Jew, and then you can be saved. That's how you can be added in, is by becoming one of us. And so the question was, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And later on, you're going to see in verse 5 that actually they went beyond that, not just circumcision, but it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So we've sort of introduced this group in the New Testament that Paul ends up dealing with quite a bit called the Judaizers. Those who teach that Gentile, in order for you to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. And through that means then you can become a Christian and you can be saved. And so how can a Gentile be saved? Well, the answer the Judaizers gave was become a Jew. Take circumcision, obey the law, and that will result in 
you being able to obtain salvation. Now, there's some question about how this chapter that we're reading right now relates to what the books that Paul had written, but it seems like Paul had already written the book of Galatians on this topic, dealing with this issue, addressing these Judaizers, and and Paul uh, saw it as a uh, a great problem, a great issue, a great threat to uh, to the gospel, and so they were saying you must be circumcised. Well, that didn't go over too well with the people who were there, Paul and Barnabas and others, and the way they responded to it. And so as they reflected on this, we continue reading in our, in our passage here, you can see how they responded. Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so you can imagine if you've read much of Paul, that Paul would have a a big issue with this. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And I love how verse two sort of understates that they had no small dissension and debate. I can imagine the volume of the dissension and the debate. Just read through the book of Galatians and you will see it's uh, kind of it's loud uh, when, you, when you read it because Paul is worked up about the threat that there is to the gospel. And so what they do is Paul and Barnabas and others, they travel down. They're going to go down to Jerusalem. They're going to address this issue, solve the problem with the apostles uh, together and with the elders there at the church in Jerusalem. And they were to come to a conclusion that would be applicable for all the churches about how we add Gentiles to the church and how should uh, the Gentiles be saved. And, and so as they went, as they're traveling down there, of course, Paul and Barnabas, who had just been on their missionary journey, They had just traveled through Cyprus and southern Turkey, and they had seen all that had gone on and how many Gentiles were saved. And so they're saying, uh, I can give you examples of Gentiles being saved in exactly the same way that Jews have been saved. So I can, they're looking at their own history of what God has done, and they're saying "There's, there's a real problem with what these Judaizers are saying there because of that. So we continue in reading in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. So now we're going to hear Peter's account, Peter's own recollections. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
And so Peter himself reflects back on his own experience, the experience that the whole church knew about, about this experience where he went and preached to Cornelius. And as he did so, Cornelius was saved. Those with him, they they believed and the Holy Spirit came upon them as evidence of their conversion. So Peter could look and see. I remember preaching on Pentecost, he's probably thinking, and and saw what happened when thousands came to Christ and, and how they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the way things went on there. And I remember that this situation with Cornelius is just like that. Only these are Gentiles and those were Jews. And so Peter himself testifies by his own experience that uh, no, uh, these, these men weren't circumcised and after that got saved. They were saved despite not being circumcised, despite not obeying the law of Moses. And so uh, Peter himself weighs in on this issue and he gives his own account of these things. And so the solution that's proposed by the Judaizers just doesn't add up to the experience of the apostles. They've, they've seen this. They've seen people be saved in the same way that Jews have been saved. So the early church had seen this. The apostles had seen this. And they knew that this was baloney. That it wasn't true. And so the Jerusalem council was called to give a definitive answer to this question. So uh, we had an initial problem, and now we've got an ironclad principle that's going to come out of this meeting of the group together. I would remind us at this point of Peter's vision. Back in Acts chapter 10, you remember the vision he had? It's a very memorable one. It's stuck with me for a long time of this vision of of, uh, Peter waiting for lunch, and he's up on top of the roof, and he's praying, and he sees this sheet lowered down. And on the sheet are all kinds of animals, a bunch of unclean animals lowered down. And the Lord says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Do you remember Peter's response? No, I've never done anything like that. Like he thinks it's, you know, sort of a test or something like that. He says, I've, I've never eaten any unclean thing. So I'm not going to go and, and eat these unclean, kill and eat these un- unclean animals. That, that, that's not consistent. I'm not going to do that. That's, uh, I've been raised my whole life following the law of Moses that I can't do that. And so that vision happens three times. And, and right at the end of that vision, as the Lord's uh, uh, judgment is still ringing in his ears, when the Lord says, what God has made clean, do not call common. With those, those words still ringing in his ears, he hears a knock at the front gate. And it's messengers from, from Cornelius who have come and said, hey, Peter, come and minister to us. We want to hear what you have to say. Well, he's just heard what God has declared to be clean, don't call common. And here he's got these common people or these unclean people, these Gentiles knocking at the door and saying, come speak to us. So he obeys. And so he goes and remember, he proclaims the gospel there and Cornelius and others come to Christ. And so this, we've already been introduced to this concept of Gentiles being included. And how does that work? Peter was told very clearly What God has made clean, what God has called clean, don't declare unclean or common. And of course, the Lord wasn't just talking about unclean animals. It was clear by the messengers from Cornelius showing up at that time, he was talking about Gentiles. He was talking about you and about me. So the point was clear. God had declared that Gentiles were to be included in the kingdom without prejudice. So that's Peter's vision, but there's more than that. We're going to continue reading here, verses 12 and and all the way down through 18. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, 
Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things happen or makes these things known from of old. And so James stands up and speaks and he's going to render his judgment. By the way, I think it's, I think it's unique here that it's James who's rendering the judgment, which kind of flies in the face of the idea that Peter was the first pope. Why, if Peter was the first pope, would James be rendering the judgment? He's about to. And it's James doing so. It's not going to be Peter. Peter testified, and his testimony was powerful. But uh, the judgment is not going to be rendered by him. It's going to be rendered by James. But James, in talking about this, says, well, this is what was spoken of old. This is what the prophets talked about in uh, the book of Amos. And so he reflects back to the book of Amos, the end of that book. And during the time of Amos, the uh, Judah was facing judgment and they were facing uh, destruction at the hand of God, right? So this was going to come. It was going to happen. But hope was not lost because God was going to restore the lineage of David, the royal dynasty, as it were, the line of David who was to be sitting on the throne. God was going to restore that. and He was going to rebuild his people around that restored tent of David. So this is not talking about all of Israel per se. It's focusing in on David himself and, and his line and the promise made to him. The Jews still had hope that the line of David would return and that the eternal reign of David's descendant would begin as had been promised back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so James reflects back and says this, this reflects what Amos was talking about. There's going to be a restoration of the line of David, but more than that, not just the line of David, but what's going to happen? Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So the restoration of the line of David in the person of Christ, who is the son of David, that restoration of that line is going to result in Gentiles being brought in. And so we should have expected this. This is from the Old Testament. This expectation is there from the Old Testament. That tent of David is Jesus himself who has been established. He's been raised from the dead. He's been established eternally on his throne, thus restoring the tent of David that Amos had talked about. And thus we should expect that Gentiles would enter in. And he says, but this is by faith alone. These Gentiles that are going to be brought in are not going to be brought in by becoming Jews. It is by faith alone. We continue reading in verse, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, says James, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Remember what the initial question was. What does a Gentile have to do to be saved? And the Judaizers said, well, if he wants to be saved, he must first be circumcised. He must first take up the, the, the law. He must be obedient to the law. And then he can be saved. So that's the initial question. Does a Gentile have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And the, the solution or the answer that James gives here is my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And this is just what Peter had said earlier. Remember, Peter said in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
So the, the answer given by the council here of what does it take for a Gentile to be saved is faith. Faith in Christ. He doesn't have to take on circumcision. He doesn't have to take on obeying the law. He doesn't have to jump through some hoops so that he can then be saved. Gentiles are saved in the same way that Jews are saved, which is by faith in Christ. So we have to keep in mind what was the initial question, what was the problem? The Judaizers saying that they must be circumcised in order that they might be saved. And so the answer that James gives is in line with the answer that that Peter gave above, is in line with what we hear from Paul everywhere. That we are not saved by obedience to the law, we are saved by faith in Christ. Salvation is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone. Gentiles don't have to become Jews first in order to become Christians. They don't have to take on obedience to the law. In fact, obedience to the law was a yoke. Peter said our fathers couldn't bear it and we couldn't bear it. So why would we take that yoke that's impossible for us, has been impossible for all of our people, and put that yoke on people who are coming to Christ? Paul writing on a very similar, very similar topic in Galatians chapter 2. This is what he says. Speaking as a Jew, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus. We are, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Salvation is by grace through faith. So this council was called because the gospel was at stake. The Judaizers wanted to follow a particular course where they could just add a couple of things to the gospel to make these Gentiles into Jews and then they could become Christians. The gospel was at stake. And so Paul and Barnabas stood up against that. Peter stood up against that. And James stood up against that. The whole council rendered their judgment. Well, the question the question that I ask is, uh, are there things that, that we are willing to add to the gospel? What works are we willing to require of people before they can become Christians? Well, our answer here is the same as Paul's answer, and it's the same as the answer of the Jerusalem Council. That answer is none. We agree with Paul words, Paul's words in Galatians 2.21. We do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness or justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But it's not through the law. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so that's the judgment. That's what's rendered regarding the issue of salvation by the council. But we're not done with the passage, are we? We also have our third point here, an irenic practice. That's a new vocab word for me, too. I really needed one that started with I. Irenic means peaceful or peaceable, so we all get to learn a word together. (laughs) An irenic practice, it was to bring peace in the community. How do you do this? How do we address this? Well, we continue reading in in uh, verse 28 and 29. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So this is a letter that's written by the council to be sent to these churches. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. And so we have those words that have been stated there that uh, reflect what James said up in 20 and 21, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I think we get a hint of what he's talking about here, that he's moved on and addressing a slightly different question. He says there in verse 21, Moses has been preached in cities around the world for generations. There are Jews everywhere who are deeply steeped in Old Testament tradition. There are Jews everywhere that Gentiles are going to run into, and therefore we need to address how Jews and Gentiles should relate to each other, particularly how Gentiles in this context should be relating to Jews. And it's based upon sensitivity to the Jews. Jews were spread all over the empire and Gentiles were going to run into them. Gentile Christians were going to run into them. And the Jews had been called to be different than the nations around them. They Remember from the very beginning, you're to be different. You're not to follow the rules of the pagans. You're to follow the rules of God. You're to do these things. You're to act like God's people in these ways. And so many of the things that the Jews had been taught to hate, to abhor, to stay away from, were exactly the things that the Gentiles did. And some of them were horribly sinful, and others of them weren't necessarily sinful. They were just abhorrent to the Jews. And so even though James and the Jerusalem Council had ruled that there wasn't some prerequisite work that the people had to do, the Gentiles had to do in order to be saved, yet the Gentile converts couldn't just ignore the sensibilities of the Jews around them. They were still going to live in relationship with the Jews. They were going to be believing Gentiles in the same church as believing Jews. How were they going to relate to each other? There were going to be unbelieving Jews around them that they would seek to witness to. How were they going to relate to them? How were they going to behave in such a way that they wouldn't drive off those Jewish unbelievers? And so that was a question to be asked because we may not be able to understand how great the distinctions are between these two cultures, but when you read the Old Testament, you see the requirements that they had. You read the New Testament, you see the difficulty the Jews had relating to the Gentiles. There was a great gulf. There was a massive difference between the Jewish sensibilities and the Gentile sensibilities. And so what James said there in verse 28, what the letter says, is that they are to avoid unnecessary offense by avoiding these things. We're not going to lay some heavy burden on you. But he said in 28 and 29, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And if you keep these, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. And so the question here is how can there be harmony between people who have such great different cultural backgrounds? We've uh, we've lived overseas, as many of you know, for several years. We we uh, dealt with all manner of different practices uh, that Russians have that are very different from ours. 
For example, when you greet a Russian, you don't dare shake hands over the threshold. That's some bad luck or bad omen or something. I don't know, but you don't. You can say hi, but then you step inside and then you shake hands or they step outside, but you don't shake hands over the threshold. Well, it's not a big deal. I mean, I can avoid shaking hands over the threshold, right? But it's for the, it's for the purpose of not, not making this other person uncomfortable in some way I don't really need to, right? Or, uh, you know, so that's an international experience and I have a couple of other international experiences because, of course, Stephanie is Canadian and, uh, and so all of my in-laws are Canadian and all the relationships there and, and, uh, one thing actually maybe th- this might have, you know, had to do with some of you too, but what do you say to someone when they say thank you? You can say you're welcome, right? If you do something for them and they say thank you, you say you're welcome. Well, that's a pretty common thing and pretty normal, but, but what do we often say? No problem, right? Well, I found out when, when my mother-in-law was driving a, um, she was driving a shuttle, an airport shuttle, and a lot of flight crews would come in and out. She would drive them from the airport to the hotel and back. And a lot of them were American. And she found that it was extremely common for the Americans to say, no problem. And she was thinking, don't, don't you mean you're welcome? Because you should say, you're welcome. That's appropriate, right? And so, so that was a minor thing. And she, and then I noticed myself saying it all the time and I kind of have to adjust and, and not do that. But, but there, there are worse things, worse ways I could offend my Canadian relatives if I just wore my shoes into the house. Did you know that? If you wear your shoes in the house, it's not, it's not just a, a tiny thing. It's like, it's a big deal, right? And so I, I, would, I would hear about it if I were ever to do that, right? And, uh, and so our kids have to be reminded, so the smaller ones have to be reminded to take shoes off. But those are, I mean, it's not a sin to wear your shoes in the house. And Canadians know it's not a sin to wear your shoes inside the house, right? But there is a cultural thing there where I have now just offended someone by doing something that was morally neutral. It wasn't a big deal. And that's kind of what's being addressed in this passage right here. We have a list of things that Gentile Christians were used to doing in their normal everyday life that may not have even been sinful for some of these, but that would have been very off-putting for their Jewish neighbors. So, for example, the things polluted by idols or the pollutions of idols. Paul's going to address that issue in, in Corinthians. He's, he writes about it and he's, you know, he, he says that it, it's not a big deal. An idol isn't really anything anyway. So if it doesn't bother your conscience to eat food sacrificed to idols, not a big deal. Right. So it in itself is not a problem. And yet for the Jews, if you showed up with, you know, this thing stamped, you know, from the idol temple that you just bought it, at, you know, at Walmart and it, but it was the idol temple and showed up with that, you would offend them. That would be a great problem. And so what they're saying is, if you would just avoid food or things polluted by idols, you will avoid a great deal of offense with Jews around you. And think about this in the context of our fellowship together. There are things that I could do that might not even be sinful, but that could be very greatly offensive to you and off-putting to you. And it could make it so that, that you would, you know, no longer believe the things that I say, or you might even doubt my salvation, or you might go somewhere else just because of something non-sinful and yet offensive that I might have done. Or think about in the context of a witnessing situation where you're going to be sharing the gospel with someone, but you lead with something very offensive, not sinful, but something very offensive. Right? You, you just lessened the chances that they're going to listen to you. 
So if I walk into a Canadian's house with my muddy shoes on or whatever, and then want to tell them about the love of Christ, I've probably already put up walls. It's a similar thing as what's going on here. Likewise, as he continues with the drinking of blood and, and eating what has been strangled, right? There's, there's very clear teaching from Leviticus 17 about eating things with the blood still in them. Now, this is part of their dietary law. This, is, this was very important to them. It sets them apart. And so, and so if you strangle something, that means you didn't drain the blood from it. And, and if you, there were certain things that had to do with uh, you know, blood as a part of a meal or whatever that are kind of gross to think about perhaps. But for the, for the Gentiles, it was not a big deal. This isn't an issue of sin. This isn't a moral issue. But for the Jews, it would have been abhorrent. Abhorrent. It's like, uh, you know, certain kinds of gifts that you, you know, if you, if you have a friend who is a, you know, was an alcoholic or something like that and you give them a bottle of wine for Christmas or something like, you know, that, that may not, that, that's not the best way to go. And so that's kind of what's being addressed here. And so regarding the first three things on the list, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. So the food itself is a neutral thing, which kind of relates back to the vision that Peter had had. But that's not all that's on the list. He also says avoid sexual immorality. And this one's a little bit more difficult to understand what is intended here. Because the first three are not necessarily moral things. They're kind of neutral things. Do you wear your shoes in the house or not? They're worse than that, but it's, it's, a, it's not a moral question. But the fourth one is very clearly a moral question. By the way, did you know about sexual immorality? That when you, when you read every list in the New Testament, every list of sins and vices, you'll find this one there. Sexual immorality is in every one. There's no other thing that's in every list, but this is. It's so prevalent and it strikes at the heart of who we are as creatures of God, created male and female, to relate to one another in a God-honoring way. That our marriage to our wife or to our husband is to be a demonstration of God's, uh, of Jesus' relationship with the church. So we picture that relationship by the way we behave sexually. And so it's in every list. It's very common. And what's interesting is, the, the Jews in the Old Testament had a much more refined definition of what sexual immorality was than the average Gentile would. We might even think, and if we took a poll here and, and said, okay, define for us what is sexual immorality, how you understand the Bible to talk about sexual immorality, we would get a, a diversity of opinions. Some of them just talk about, well, no, 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 you know, sex before marriage and no sex outside of marriage. So no fornication, no adultery, everything beyond that is good to go. That we would get, you know, kind of some definitions like that. We would get some different gradations of definitions. But for the Jew, they had a very clearly spelled out concept of sexual immorality that included issues of incest or how how close a relative or how close a person related to you, connected to you by family, could you marry? For example, if you remember the story of uh, why John the Baptist was beheaded, do you remember why? It's because he had been calling out Herod for being married to his sister-in-law. He wasn't married to his sister. He was married to his sister-in-law. And John was saying, you can't do that. That's 
sexual immorality according to the Old Testament. So they had clearly defined rules as far as incest and other things like that. And so the Jew had a much fuller understanding of what was involved in sexual immorality for the Gentile, even for the the Gentile convert who was obeying God. The definition is very basic and very simple. And I'm not, I'm not sure of this. This is, uh, the, the commentators disagree on this, but my, the way I understand this is for the Jerusalem council to be saying, you need to be aware that some of the relationships that you have and some of the understandings that you have of what is permitted sexually and as far as sexual immorality and sexual morality does not line up with the Old Testament. And the Jews will spot it immediately. They will see it right away. Things that, that in your, Gentile contexts were normal in a Jewish context are abhorrent. They're an abomination. And so you need to educate yourself about the Jewish perspective on this. The Bible is very clear and teaches a lot on this idea of sexual immorality as evidenced by it being taught throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But this is, uh, this is how I understand it. He's saying, regarding these first three things, he's saying, avoid them for the sake of the Jews around you so that you can have fellowship, unhindered fellowship with Jews, Jewish believers, but also so that you don't get the door slammed in your face when you go to share the gospel with an unbelieving Jew. If you will avoid these things, you will do well. But when it comes to the sexual immorality issue, I think what they're saying is you need to understand better. You need to, you need to be very careful in this area of sexual immorality because things that you think are normal and okay for your culture aren't for the Jewish culture. There is a very clear Jewish uh, uh, spelling out of what's involved in sexual immorality. And like I said, people disagree on that. Some people think it, it uh, has to do with just the incest issues and things like that, but that's the best I can, I can understand this. The, the question here, the question in the second part of this, and this, the third part in your outline, the whole question here is, how do we, of different cultures and different backgrounds, get along with one another? And the answer is, you defer to the other person. Or as Paul's going to put it elsewhere in in Corinthians, to the weaker brother. Eating food sacrificed to idols to a Gentile would be like, well, no big deal. This is where I bought my food before I got saved. It's where I buy my food now. It's not a big deal. But for the Jew, it was a big deal. And so what Paul is saying, for the sake of your weaker brother, you need to be willing to set aside that freedom that you have to eat meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of the weaker brother, that you show love by means of that. If you'll flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you'll, you'll read Paul summing up his view on this. Paul, who was all about the freedom that we have in Christ, who was all about salvation by grace through faith, You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul, who taught so strongly on that, who was willing to go to the mat on this, and yet when it came to practice, when it came to how you live with people around you, he had this to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, 
that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul, who was willing to go toe-to-toe, who was willing to die for the purity of the gospel, that a person is saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law, who would write so much of the New Testament on exactly that topic. Yet when it came to practice of fellowshipping with another believer, he was willing to say, even though I am free in these ways, for your sake, I am willing to act as though I'm not free. I'm willing to restrict myself for the sake of bringing the gospel to you, for the sake of fellowship with you and unity with you. That's what he was willing to do. And so that's essentially what, how I read the Jerusalem Council there. Their first statement is that now when it comes to the gospel, a person is saved by grace through faith, period, apart from works. And yet, Gentiles, you live in a world with so many Jews who have such understandings of morality from their culture and from their Old Testament and from the law and the things that they've been bound by, you can minister to them better if you will just refrain from these certain things. You'll be able to keep that door of communication open. And so our passage here is dealing with two things. It's dealing with the gospel itself and the purity of it. And they, they stated very clearly in an ironclad principle, this gospel, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet you see... That uh, So they've got that ironclad principle, but they've also got this peace-bringing practice of how they behave with one another. If you want to not be offensive to those around you, here are some things that you can do. Follow these things. So I have a couple of takeaways for us. The first one just has to do with the issue of sexual immorality. If I were to take a poll of us, and it's kind of tempting to do that, kind of give a short answer, written definition of what is sexual immorality according to your understanding from Scripture, my, my question is, I wonder, do we get our definition from Scripture or do we get it from the culture? Because the culture shifts on this, right? For those of you who remember what morality was like 50, 60 years ago, it was different than it is now. And if you could remember 100 years ago, 150, 200 years, it's different. It's shifting, right? Because it, it keeps changing. And so there's uh, sometimes the church establishes its morality by looking at where the culture is and then going a couple steps behind it because that keeps us you know, more conservative than the culture. That's a good thing, right? And so some of us might have definitions like that. But we should get our definition from the Bible. Our definition of what is right, what is wrong, our definition uh, of marriage and all of those things and what is sexually moral, what is sexually immoral, we should get those definitions from the Bible. And so I wonder, do we get them from our culture instead? Or maybe we get them from evangelical culture, looking at other churches, looking at the Christians who write the books and maybe they are defining for us. And I would challenge us and, and our desire is that we get our definition of what is sexually immoral from Scripture itself. We want to be defined by this, not by other things. That's the first question. That's a thing to ponder. It's not, that's not the major emphasis of our passage, but it's something for us to keep in mind as we, as we read through Scripture. The second observation, second takeaway. 
Are we willing to lay down our own freedoms for the sake of winning others to Christ or for the sake of harmonious fellowship with fellow believers? Some of us have stronger consciences in some some issues, like they're talking about here, food sacrifice to idols, not a big deal. And some are much weaker in their conscience that, yeah, it's a big deal for them. This issue of what, whatever it is, is not a moral issue over here, and for the other person it becomes a moral issue. And are, are we going to champion our freedoms, hold up our freedoms, and in a sense rub it in the faces of those who have a weaker conscience than us, and make it a gospel issue when it's not a gospel issue? Are we going to insist on that, or are we going to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to set this freedom aside for this, the sake of this relationship, for the sake of this opportunity to share the gospel, for the sake of, of the opportunity to fellowship together as believers. And we have a lot of different backgrounds in our church here. We have a lot of opportunities for us to set aside our own preferences and even our own freedoms to bless others. Thirdly, is there anything we want to add to the gospel? Are there... Hoops that we unconsciously want to make new converts jump through before they can really be Christians. I, I don't know what those might be. Maybe it's that they, they really need to clean up their language. Or maybe it's that they need to begin to act like us and then they can be saved. Or, or maybe it's that they need to change the way they dress or cover up their tattoos or I don't know what. Are, are, there, are there things that we put before the gospel subconsciously? Things that, that we require a person to do this or they can't be saved. I don't know what those might be, but from our passage here, the, the ruling of the council here is very clearly a person is saved by grace through faith. Period. And so that's what we want to hold to, and that's what we want to have as our unifying factor here at, at Parkside. We want to be unified around the gospel, and if that means sometimes I need to set aside a freedom of mine for the sake of our fellowship, I will do so. Or if perhaps you need to set aside a freedom of yours or a preference of yours uh, for the sake of our fellowship, that you'll do that, because what keeps us together is not a common interest it's not a common age or a common demographic. What keeps us together, what unifies us, what is the unifying principle is Jesus Christ himself who saves sinners. And so we want to hold that as the center. We want to keep that central. And so if something I prefer gets in the way of you and I being gathered together around that, I want to be willing to set that aside and vice versa because we want to be centered around, we want to be gathered around, we want to fellowship around the gospel of salvation in Christ. And so that's what we want to keep our eyes fixed on. That's part of the reason that we, we try to stay so close to Scripture is so that we keep our eyes on that. We don't add in something else so that in order to have fellowship with us or in order to be a Christian, you've got to become like us in some way, and then you can become a Christian. That is no gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ saves by his own death, by the price that he paid, by grace through faith. And so that's what we want to proclaim and that's what we want to gather around. And, and even as we go to prayer now, that's what we want to gather around and fellowship around. Not, not, not our common interests or not our other things. Those are, those are fine. But around the gospel, that's our unifying factor. And so I'm going to pray in a moment. And uh, after I do that, uh, there's going to be a prayer team who comes forward. They would love to pray with you. They would love to uh, talk about gospel issues. They would love to pray through struggles that you might be having or, or pain or things that you want to rejoice about or whatever. They would love to do that. Let's pray together. 
our Lord and our God, we are so grateful that we didn't have to become different in order to enter into relationship with you. We didn't have to take on circumcision. We didn't have to take on the law. We didn't have to change who we are in order to enter into relationship with you. That salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And so we rejoice in that. We rejoice that that uh, Gentiles can enter in, that they've, they've been included, that people like us have been included in the kingdom of God without prejudice by Jesus because of His work. So, Father, we, we rejoice and we praise You and we thank You for that. And I pray that everyone here would in, enter into that relationship with You d- despite where they are, that they would put their faith in Christ that they would turn away from trusting the thing that they were trusting before and instead turn to Christ, that they might be saved also, that they might enter into the kingdom of God. And Father, I thank you also that we have fellowship with one another, that you have called us to be members of a body together. And we are not members gathered around a common interest or, uh, or something that we prefer to do or uh, around some economic uh, standing or a situation in life or whatever. We, we, we have those things, many of those things in common. But we gather together and we rejoice to be able to fellowship together around Christ and what He's done for us. And so thank you that we have that fellowship. And sometimes, many times, that means that we change our preferences or uh, the things that we might normally desire to do, that we would lay those aside for a moment, that we might have fellowship with one another, that we might not put a stumbling block or a hindrance or uh, or get the door slammed in our face with someone else around us because we uh, demand to flaunt our freedom. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you for your work in the gospel, saving sinners. May we always be centered around. May we always be gathered around the gospel. May we always be giving you glory for what you have done in the gospel. And may we even be willing to set aside things that we might otherwise want to do for the sake of the gospel, that we might bless others. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Now may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you are dismissed.